Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. My guests today are two of the planet's most loved and successful soul, pop and R&B groups. Odyssey originated from New York City. Their first hit, Native New Yorker, in 1977 was recorded using session musicians, but it led to a string of hit singles in the UK and America. Shalimar come from California and were created by Soul Train booking agent Dick Griffey, also from Session Singers. But their debut single success, Uptown Festival, led them to be replaced by Soul Train dancers Jodie Watley and Jeffrey Daniel. But first to Odyssey. The band are still managed and led by Steve Colazzo and have been able to squeeze in a few gigs here in the UK. I put it to Steve that he seemed to love playing live. Absolutely, man. It's just nothing like it. It's just been a nightmare of late, but... Uh... You know, it's still happening. It's, it's still finding ways. And what is it about being on stage that, you know, you really turns you on, really you really enjoy? I think first and foremost, it's the fact that uh, every time, even though we do more or less a similar set every time, every show is different somehow. I don't know how that really works or why, other than maybe the geography of a place, perhaps. But every single show is different somehow. And every time it's always an adventure to see doing the same show, more or less, how it's going to be different tonight. Interesting. No, that, that, that's really interesting. And what about the reaction from the audience? I guess, you know, you're loved in the UK. I mean, Odyssey is really loved in the UK, possibly even more than in the US where you originated mm. from. Mm. I guess when you get an adoring audience who know the songs, that must really make you feel even extra special when you're on stage. Oh, absolutely. And but what I enjoy even more than the onstage feedback is I'm, I'm one who I'm usually the last man standing in, in, in Odyssey as it exists now. I'm the oldest, but I'm always the last man standing. And I always make time for audiences where and when it's reasonably practical to do so, go out and have a drink or whatever. I have my little Clark Kent disguise that I wear, but... What do you wear? Just my glasses and maybe a, I just look really frumpy compared to how I just looked on stage. And you so, can say, how is that guy on stage you've just seen? And then they give you an honest feedback. Well, they do. Very good, smart. Good, bad, or indifferent, they certainly do. But more often than not, it's usually good feedback. What I enjoy most of all is also the stories of how our music is the soundtrack to people's lives in so many ways. Oh, my child was conceived to this. My, I met my wife when we danced to that. We went here. We were there. We were. And I never get tired of hearing those, those stories, those soundtrack stories, I like to call them. Well, you've got so many songs which are hits and therefore, I guess, so many stories. The first big Odyssey hit, 1977, Native New Yorker. Wow, what a hit that was. It must have been amazing to come out of the box and have such a big hit so fast. Well, it certainly was. It wasn't as fast as it may have seemed. It was quite a, quite, took most of that year in the making. At that time, in 1977, um, New York City was on the verge of bankruptcy. So I think it was also a matter of timing for that particular song. It was a really horrible place to be, to live, the gangs, the all sorts of things. Meantime, the disco scene was bubbling under in the gay clubs and everything. It was starting to happen. And Odyssey was a means to pay the rent, <laughs> if I'm completely honest. And that's kind of how it got started. We were all teenagers, my brothers and I. We had a lodger named Tony Reynolds, my mom and my aunt. And my brothers and I, gradually, we weren't going to school. 
well, listen, you can sing a bit, you can play a bit, you can dance a bit, you can do this a bit and that a bit. We need to pay the bills. So, hence Odyssey, so to speak. So, Steve, that was your first hit. You were talking about the grimy New York, but the song, of course, is really lush. There's sort of a, a counterpoint there, isn't it? And the song's got this amazing sort of romantic feel to it, yet actually it's talking about a very grimy and rather difficult New York. I say grimy New York in the physical sense of it, but it also talks about the grit of New York, the determination, the you can make it there, you can make it anywhere mentality of New Yorkers and adopted New Yorkers. And I reckon that song, if you live in any big city or any uh, vibrant place in the world, especially when it's having its difficulties, as all cities do from, from time to time every so often, um, I think that's also why that song resonated so much with so many people everywhere because in our own in our own little cities, if you like, in our own little city homes, if you like, sometimes those that very thing, that very idea um, still resonates with people, you know, about you know riding subways or you know taking yourself to work, doing whatever you can to to keep going. There was also something about the song, because when you talk to songwriters, matching the artist to the song is a really important thing, and somehow that song was just right for Odyssey. How did that song come to you? It came through us through Sandy Linzer, and here's an interesting thing that I have only found out in the last, I don't know, five, seven years or so. It was actually done by the same producer, Sandy Linzer, originally by um, uh, Frankie Valli. Really? Yes. I didn't even know this. He did it. I heard his version. I don't mean any disrespect, but it was just sort of an album track. And it somehow, and maybe the timing of it wasn't quite the same as it was for us or whatever, and something about my mom's voice. and uh, But it was the same producer, same song, pretty much. Um, and yet it had a completely different... A, completely different take altogether so you're absolutely right when you say that it's it's also a question of the right song with the right artist sandy linza saw us in some swank little place where my brothers and i weren't even supposed to be he really was mostly interested in mom's voice but of course mom was not going to let him pick us off as was uh, and she s stayed with it as long as possible but i understood too that I mean, she was the glue of the whole thing. And so I, I knew it was only a, the, the best that we could manage was to try to just stay on the periphery, support her, and uh, let Mr. Linzer, who was the experienced producer, had the deals with RCA. He was the man who was going to get us through. So, yes, let's cry all the way to the bank about how come we can't get to sing along <laughs> with the band well, anymore. We, we love the Frankie Valley version, but yours is the definitive version of Native New Yorker. That is certainly true. So you mentioned your mum. So Odyssey started as the Lopez Sisters. So tell me that story. Well, it didn't start as the Lopez Sisters. The Lopez Sisters was an entity unto itself. It was my mother and her two sisters. And uh, it was aspirational in that sense. My mom's ambition was always really to be a songwriter. And these groups, Odyssey included, uh, in her mind, as far as I'm aware, were just vehicles to get to that songwriting thing. That's really what she wanted to do. She's actually a Grammy Award winner. She won a Grammy for a Broadway play musical called uh, Bubbling Brown Sugar back in the day. And uh, I mean, that was really where her heart was. She's written a couple of books. 
but she always wanted to write. She just happened to have this incredible voice to her, to her, to her credit. And so she used it. But the Lopez sisters, they toured Europe in the, in the must have been the almost late 60s, I guess. Uh, but my Aunt Carmen, um, she just wasn't into the showbiz life. It just wasn't working for her. And um, so she left the group. And uh, um, for a while, it, the remaining Lopez sisters sort of just putted around, doing more songwriting, doing demos, you know, just finding other ways into the industry. And it wasn't really until, say, 76 or so, as I say, as the city started, you know, coming. And as my brothers and I, of course, were growing up, they also uh, gave my mom a little more leeway, if you like, a little more room to, to start to explore things. And that's kind of where Odyssey descended from the Lopez sisters more so than it was uh, an immediate extension of, if that makes sense. Where did the name Odyssey come from? We still don't remember. What we do remember, one of my brothers, I have brothers who are twins, and one twin, is he insists that, that he was the one who ultimately came up with the name. What I do remember is that we were sitting around our table trying to think of a name to play these tourist traps in New York most of which are mercifully gone now, but, um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and we were batting around, and sometimes that can be a really fun game to play, you know, you start coming up with really silly names, but what we agreed on was the idea of it being a journey, because we had all of these diverse tastes in music, um, Latin, jazz, classical, pop, Motown, soul, oh, funk, all kind of stuff, so, so it was understood that it was going to be a journey. I don't know, somehow I can't remember if it was Journey already existed, the, the band Journey. Uh, or what we, so we, we knew it was going to be a journey, and it started with trying to come up with... So you might have been called Journey. We might have been. Wow. If they hadn't He's existed. Now. Yes. <laughs> and somehow my brother, and I can't, I don't remember, so I can't dispute him on it, but he... He thinks that he's the one who finally said Odyssey and, and Odyssey, and we just thought, well, just Odyssey, and, and that's just kind of how it happened. Well, it was a wise decision. So, Steve, we've talked about the Lopez sisters, your mum's incredible singing voice and her songwriting skills. How did you then join the band? Well, as I say, it was a means to pay the rent. Uh, I've always been a keyboard player, a piano player, but more keyboard player, organ and that sort of thing. My mom, she was um, classically trained, uh, but I just started playing the piano like from two, two and a half years old. I just started playing by ear. You were ear. really young, yes. babies. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And my mom wasn't sure, do I, do I stick him in school now and quite possibly kill the vibe, or do I just let him keep banging away as he is and maybe never properly learn music? And I suppose uh, I've kind of come up with a half and half thing. But she made use of it, uh, made, always made use of my ear. Uh, I, I could, when I was a child, and I only vaguely remember this, but I could hear, say, a television commercial advert. And, um, and I couldn't even sit at the piano, but I could stand in front of the keys. Because you were just too small. Yeah. Wow. And reach up over my head and, and find the note, or whatever it is, and, and pick from just my ears pick out something I heard on the television. 
So you were playing stuff off the TV. That's really in yes. your early days. Mm. And then what did, what did you then start evolving into? What were you playing? Well, once I was could sit at the at the piano, say from three and a half, four years old, which this I do remember. I actually started experimenting with with playing my own stuff, just things that that made me happy to play, and still picking things up whatever I heard, and I could play something in the key that I heard it. This was another little... So you've got perfect pitch? Well, I would call it perfect pitch retention. Ah, very good. <laughs> okay. Yes. If so I you hear it, a key and you can recognize it. And I can remember it, even though I'm not hearing it at the moment. Right. I can remember that what key I heard it in. Great yeah. skill. Well, let's play your first uh, UK number one in 1980, Use It Up and Wear It Out. Now, what a, what a big song this was. You had a couple of singles in between... Um, which were smaller hits, but this then was just the, the monster yes. number one song. Absolutely, it sure was. And why do you think? Well, first thing I'll have to say, getting slightly controversial, but just to say that number one is because the Brits most especially did not have that kind of bias about who could do what music. Um, the Brits liked the particular song, they liked it, and then the details maybe, oh, actually they happened to be a black group, or they happened to be a white group playing black music, or whatever. The Brits did not have that thing going on like we had in the United States, and why we struggled in the United States to make hits, because we were going, long before the expression was in vogue, we were way outside of the box right. for the comfort of record companies who wanted to mold you and you belong to a record company when you sign to them. And were you confined in the US to the R&B charts? They wanted to confine us to it. My mother fought them tooth Good for her. nail Good for her. and nail and tooth. And eventually it, it, it led to them removing Tony Reynolds because they felt, even though he had the biggest afro I've ever seen in my life to this day, uh, he wasn't quite black enough. So he was removed by the record company. Yes, That's well, why he, he was left. bought out. I should he was say. bought out. Yes. Okay. They said, "Liz, we're going to buy your contract out. Here's X amount of money." Couldn't he have had a haircut? Wouldn't that have been cheaper? It would have been, <laughs> or got a, got some spray tan or something. Maybe that would have been better. I don't know. But he was too light. I think he was he was black and it's Filipino. A real shame, isn't it? That it makes is. an impact. Actually, it yeah, does. It but that was that, that was, was the mentality well, was yeah. back then. So they got a darker skinned, more R and B, and no disrespect or anything to Billy McEachin, great singer, really great guy, but also a kind of a, a marketing move, if you like, to try to move Odyssey into a market that RCA felt much more comfortable about selling. Brits, no such problem. Use it up, wear it out. They were just, didn't care who we were or where we came from or anything. They liked the record, they bought the record, they played the record, boom, number one, 1980. So, big hit. Now, lots of artists and people, you mentioned Cool and the Gang already. Shalimar says this to me. Heather Small from M People said this to me. The thing about going on top of the pops, which you did, was this amazing mixture of bands. It's a bit like what you were saying earlier. You've got rock bands, you've got punk bands, you've got R&B bands, you've got solo singers, this whole mix. What was Top of the Pops like for you? Well, it's the first time on TV. This is 1981 for me. I hate to mention this because my phone blows up every time. It comes on um, on uh, uh, a late night show on uh, BBC or occasionally. But uh, if you look on YouTube, going back to my roots, Top of the Pops, you'll see this kid, this big afro, playing guitar, allegedly. 
<laughs> Miming. Yes. Um, so that experience was just, I mean, you know, I, I, I barely remember keeping my mouth closed. And I did, of course, I didn't know all of the British artists. Um, but it was just the idea of being on TV, you know, and being to my first uh, uh, television recording and all of these things. I mean, it was just mind-blowing. Now on the red carpetry, I rode my first Daimler, I think, here. And, so you're enjoying life. You're oh enjoying being a music goodness, star, a pop star. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. And Top of the Pops, of course, did sell a lot of records. Mm. In those days, records used to climb the charts. Mm. And the week you got Top of the Pops, you were pretty certain that probably the next week you were going to go up, or in your case, keep mm. it at number one. Yes, that's right. And that's the way it went. And this so it was, was important. Uh, yeah, it was important. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, we have, uh, we have or I'm, I'm not even sure, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but of course, we had shows like that and I don't know if they were modeled on Top of the Pops or Top of the Pops were modeled on them but there was American Bandstand which most of Yanks had grown up with you know Tony Clark the uh, eternal uh, uh, Dick Clark the eternal Dick Clark the eternal teenager yeah. I think he lived to be 105 and still looked exactly the same as yeah, he did but he always wore a suit and tie too <laughs> yes, isn't he as well he which is really weird introducing all these rock and roll acts and there he is wearing a suit and tie yes, looking like a bank manager absolutely and of course there was uh, Soul Train yes uh, which which went but they both had the same effect in, in the sense that uh, you know once you got on those shows you had arrived <laughs> you know so to speak and so for me I had arrived in the United Kingdom and in England and of course I'd heard of it and heard about it and rumor had it that we actually learned our language from you but uh, other than that <laughs> I mean, you you were you were brought up in New York City and you came to the UK how different was it I'll tell you my favorite story very briefly uh, during that time I met a young lady in, in the course of our travels and uh, we had agreed to meet up again and she said will you uh, tell you what I'll meet you at the so-and-so pub at uh, half two. So I showed up at one o'clock. But I remember when she said it, I thought, half two, what a funny way to say one o'clock. Obviously, I now know she meant 2.30, but, and we, we might have said half past two, maybe in some states in America, but most of us say 2.30 when we mean 2.30. She said half two. So I showed up at one o'clock. Needless to say, she wasn't there yet. And then I waited and then I left. And, and then she the, arrived and you'd already and gone. I had already gone. And yeah. when I saw her again, I told her what happened. So that, that was the thing, the, the being divided by the common language, which after 26 years of living in the United Kingdom, I still find sometimes that we are divided by this common language. So do you say elevator or lift? No, I still say elevator. You still say elevator. That's right. And I okay. still walk on the sidewalk. Okay, very, very good. Stay true to your heritage. Let's play um, another one of your hits. And, and you followed up that number one with a song that got to number six in the UK, If You're Looking for a Way Out. Yes. So the story of that song, where did that come from? Well, by this time, I mean, these songs were basically Sandy Linder's Sandy Elder. <laughs> these songs were Sandy Linder's uh, machine, if you like. Now, I mean, and he's great, fair play to the man. I mean, he wrote most of these hits uh, that we so still enjoy to this day. Um, and I mean, he once he knew that he had a uh, 
a sort of outlet, if you like, uh, in the UK and Europe and, you know, that side, I, th I believe, and I've never heard this from him per se, but I have a sense that he figured, well, what the heck, I, I can lighten up now, I don't have to worry about the, you know, trying to fit into the mold that they're trying to stick me in or stick this group in. And so he just started writing songs, as he had done from the beginning. And um, so there was no real attachment necessarily. We, we have our favorites that we like, and we have our other ones that, you know, they're just songs that we're, we're, we're just doing. But um, Looking for a Way Out was another one of those where, uh, as a quote-unquote black group in America, there's no way that that would have been a hit for us or even gotten any, even on so much as a look-in. Here in Britain, you all love the song. That's all that mattered. And then, oh, it's Odyssey. Oh, well, how neat is that? And this is a very soulful song. I mean, mm. really soulful, really mm. emotional. Mm. I think so. But, you know, soul and soulful are, what are they, subjective in relative terms. Because the soul heads, as uh, I've learned a term from you Brits, uh, so heads, although they all know it and quite a lot of them like it, they wouldn't consider it a soul song, but they would agree that it's a soulful song if you get my semantics. <laughs> Steve Colazzo is my guest on Private Lives. I'm Paul Robinson. So you've had two massive hits on the back of Native New Yorker. How did your life change? I mean, you are now big stars with, you know, a string of hits. Did your life change? Was it um, nicer hotels and, and nicer cars? Um... Well, never much of a driver, to be perfectly honest You'd with you. You'd be driven now, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Our lives didn't, uh, I mean, they changed in, in, in a day-to-day -day sense, but they didn't, I mean, we didn't suddenly become zillionaires and stuff, not least because um, we didn't write those songs. Sandy Linzer wrote them. And let's face it, after the records are no longer selling, then you're only making money from doing gigs, and so you're still working all the time. This is what people don't necessarily, the general public don't know. They see you on TV and they hear you on the radio and they think, oh, he must be loaded and rolling in it. You're doing better than you were, but you still have to get out and work. You still have to go out and do your gigs. You have to play places, sometimes not the best places in the world, but maybe that have a lot of people or, you know. So um, our lives didn't change that much. And for my mother, rest her soul, she still had an ultimate goal of writing and trying to get one of her songs. And I will say, she was at least as good a songwriter as Sandy Linzer, if not, I mean, she won a Grammy, he didn't, excuse me. <laughs> no, 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 that, that's the facts of the matter. <laughs> yes, but, um, um, and so she was still doing that battle, uh, you know, uh, trying to, trying to, just let me, all right, you, you're making all your money off of everything and we're singing the songs for you. Can, can I just put a couple on, on, on one of these albums, even if you don't push it? Right. Can, can, can I just have a couple on there, you know? And again, it was all of the, these battles that my mom had to do. And so the battles with the record company? With the record company and the management, which was Tommy Matola, who used to manage Mariah Scary. And, we know, we know Tommy, know, yes, by reputation. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Sandy Lenza, and they had a publishing company, so it behooved them to have control over writing all of the songs and everything. And, you know, that was the record 
industry back in the day, you know, so uh, I'm not, I'm not bitter. You're not the only artist who said that too. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard about the Motown run around and all yes. sorts of things mm-hmm. that went on in uh, all sorts industry. of legendary uh, yeah. uh, record companies and labels. So I think yeah. you weren't alone there. Yeah. So the band has changed lineups over the years. You've been the sort of the, the glue and the really the, the guy who's kept the thing consistent throughout. Talk about the current lineup. I, I actually love this bit. Because um, first I have KJ. Uh, her name is KJ Sullivan. Uh, sorry, S- Sutherland. I so very rarely use her surname. I forget what it is. She's just KJ to us and KJ. the world, and uh, she's been with me for quite some time. And um, I have Michelle John, who some of you listeners may remember from The Voice. She was a runner-up, I think it's a couple of years ago now. Um, and uh, she's powerhouse of a voice, and hence runner-up. And, uh, and what I love about these women, and one prior to Michelle is uh, Romina Johnson, who had a big hit in the 90s with Moving Too Fast, with the Artful Dodger, and who still works with us from time to time if either of my other two ladies can't make it. And, uh, you know, a cast of many, but I, I would say that mostly I've been fortunate to get people who appreciate the spirit, appreciate, maybe even grew up with it to a certain extent, appreciate the spirit of it, yet can still put their own something to it without imitation, deviation or repetition. I think that's a game show, isn't it? It is. It is. I've been here too long. You have. You've become anyway. very English. <laughs> so I've been very fortunate in that way that they have really assisted me in ways that I can't even begin to describe. And then I add to that a, 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 a team of five musicians plus a few, uh, I'll call them understudies for lack of a better musical term, and um, and these guys, they're quite young compared to old geezer like me. But um, You look young to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. You look great. Now that I'm insufferably pleased with myself. No, you do look fantastic. <laughs> and these fellas have also helped me over these last, it's getting on for five, six years now, have really helped me to, to go back to the musical director days when I was the musical director for my mom and my aunt and Billy McEachin and, and, and that odyssey, um, have been able to, to take my ideas, my sound, my whatever, my, 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 and, and help me to carry on this legacy musically. Same thing, you know, staying with what people know and yet and embracing my ideas, my way of putting on a show and doing music, and and people have been loving it. And well, Odyssey's a brand, isn't it? And you've got to nurture yes. that brand. You've got to be open to the new, but you've got to make sure you deliver what people expect and Absolutely. nurture all the good DNA of that brand of Odyssey. That's You've just described it exactly, and all of these people that, are, that I've mentioned have over the, well, it's getting on for, well, 20 years now that I've been fronting this just about, and I, I can say of just about everyone who's, who's, who's been a part of the brand, and thank you for saying that as well, because it used to be the Odyssey band, and now it's the, the R. Yeah, and it's, that's right, but you are, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's the modern yeah. thing now. 
and they've all helped me to, to keep it the legacy, my legacy, moving forward and yet still satisfying those who have put it where it is. And I'm, I'm so privileged and so incredibly grateful, I have to say. Well, let's play a next hit, which was originally recorded by Lamont Dozier. He wrote the song. You've mentioned the song already, yes. going back to my roots. Yes, yeah, so roots, as we roots. like to call it. Do it again. Do it yes. again. Roots. That's, see, that great. <laughs> Far better than I do. Back to my roots. <laughs> yes, I have to say, though, uh, Lamont's version is still my favorite. I like what what uh, Steve Terrell did with it, the, the next producer after Sandy Linza. I like what he did with it and everything, but but Lamont's is still the one, and his is the one I reach for even before ours, even though I, I like what we did with it. His is still the, well, sometimes nobody's gonna do a song better than than he who wrote it. He's a fantastic artist, yes. an amazing voice, but in the UK, you had the hit with this, not Lamondo's. I know, I did. you said it, I didn't. <clears throat> that's the fact. <laughs> yeah, that's the fact. But you've done a lovely version of this. I mean, when you did cover that song, I mean, knowing it's Lamondo's, yeah, knowing he also wrote it, mm. was there any pressure? Um, yes and no. Um, rumor has it, again, this is just rumor, he, he wasn't all that keen on our, on our version, but, a songwriter in him knows that even if you hate what somebody does, uh, uh, another example is Dolly Parton probably hated Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You all the way to the bank. Well, <laughs> if exactly, makes, 16 weeks at number one. You know what I mean? Is a big bank, yes. Yes, <laughs> but would, would Whitney have been her first choice to sing it after herself? I rather I don't know yeah. but I'm just well, I think I think Dolly actually also is quite happy to write for other people I mean I've heard her yes. interviewed and she said you know she's just honored that somebody else covers her song well, I'm pleased to say yeah. that was just the first example yeah. that came off but my yeah, the money helps <laughs> yes whereas you know her version is, is completely different yeah. and you know she may or may not have I didn't know that you know but um it's a bit like this issue, isn't it? If some songs work for her. I mean, she's done amazing songs, which could never be covered by somebody else. Yes. Whitney was a stunning artist. Well, yes. And that song somehow maybe was just right for Whitney mm -hmm. rather than Dolly. And that's yes. just the singer and the song. Right. There's some extra yeah. magic there. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I guess that's what I like to think is a sort of a parallel anomaly, um, analogy to Lamont Doja, uh, going back to my roots versus Odyssey's one. I, I really like the rawness of Lamont's version. Ours is a bit more polished, but has its own magic in its own way. And rumor has it, he wasn't all that keen on all the polish, but you know, who knows? <laughs> you are really loved in the UK. I mean, the US like you, but I think the UK really, really love you. I would agree with that, Paul. I mean, they, it's, it's nice. Uh, uh, I'll just, we did a couple of shows a couple of years ago in New York for the first time in decades, 30 years, I, I believe. And just out of habit, because we have so many more hits here, I absolutely have a choice of, of how I'm going to put a show together. And I often like to start with Native New Yorker in the UK. I don't always, but you know, sometimes I feel like that's the one to, to get us going. And uh, so I was in New York, and uh, so I gave the running order to the show's producer or whatever. Yeah, so we're going to start with Native New York and blah, blah, blah. And he just looked at me and he said, why would you do that? 
And then I thought to myself, oh, no, here in New York, that's the one that absolutely has to close with. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can't start yeah. with that one in New York City. The 2021 top 30 hit, yeah, in the US. Yeah. Can't do that. Yeah. You know, you can start with anything else, but not that. <laughs> so so it's, a, it's a completely different kettle of fish. And there's also a couple of different songs that I can pull out, like Don't Tell Me, Tell Her. The soul heads all know it in the UK. And there are certain gigs, especially in London, where if we don't do it, they'll run us out on the rails. But if I, I was go going to say, there must be certain songs when you're mm. playing live that you must do. I yes. mean, all artists say, I say, I'll ask artists, are you, are you tired of playing that mm. song? And they go, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. You know, the, art, the audience wants it. And mm-hmm. that's been my, you know, my bank. You know, that's yes. been my checkbook. Why would I not play it? Exactly. You're the same, are you? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yet there are some places, you are out in Devon or whatever, <laughs> where you play it and you can see over an audience, even at festivals and somewhere you can really see people. You can see that a lot of people don't know it. You know, once you get out into the shires and stuff, they, they, don't, they don't know it at all. And so oftentimes I, I don't even put it in um, unless it's specifically a soul do or, a, you know, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't include it. But in London, there is absolutely nowhere in this town, in Birmingham, in Manchester, uh, any of the major the big cities. cities, yeah, Newcastle. Hey, yeah. You better do that song, or they will they will hurt you. <laughs> well, we, we wouldn't want any of that. <laughs> I'm um, kidding. Next year, October, you're going to be supporting the Four Tops and the Temptations. Oh my goodness! What an amazing gig that's going to be. Can you imagine Four Tops, Temptations, and Odyssey? That's a lineup. Well, I'm I'm having to imagine it because um, it's really going to happen, and I keep, and I mean the the first step in that direction was uh, we'd open for the stylistics many times another legendary you know and uh, at first glance you think well you know I, I wouldn't even think that we that we went well together but those went really really well and uh, we are so looking forward to it and uh, with a bit of negotiation on my part um, they've let us use our band Odyssey's own band right. you know where sometimes you know, in order to get on those bills, you have to just... So were you negotiating with Duke Fakir or with the management? I mean, we interviewed Duke a few weeks ago and he was really devastated when it was moved to next year. Yeah, and yes. Really looking forward to it. And he's obviously, uh, you know, been around many, many years and yes. he can't wait to get back on the road. I bet, yes. No, I, I've not uh, not spoken to any of the them directly, all the negotiations or whoever's bringing them over and doing everything over here. But it was kind of like, listen, um, you really want you really want some bang for the buck, and you really want some proper support for for legends. I, for one, I I actually probably would have not done the gig unless I was able to. I mean, you're on the stage with legends, man. You better come big or stay home. You've got to be big because you know three big artists there. You know, you've got to deliver. Yeah, yeah. So that's very exciting, and we look forward to that in October. So do I. Well, it's been a total pleasure, Steve. Great that you live in the UK. Stay in the UK. We love having you here. Can't wait to enjoy the gigs. Autumn 2021. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. And Odyssey planned to be on tour in 2021, playing with The Temptations and The Four Tops. Keep checking online for further details.
Shalimar's lineup has changed over the years, but the trio of Jeffrey Daniel, Jodie Watley, and Howard Hewitt is the classic lineup and the most successful. Their list of hits is long and impressive, but their entire catalogue has now been assembled into one three CD compilation set. I asked Howard Hewitt and Jeffrey Daniel first how they felt about it. The whole life captured and see that's that's amazing. That, that when you put it that way, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> But there's nearly 40 tracks on here, which I, I know is not all of your, yes. your songs, but it's most of your hits. Most of the hits and stuff. And it was amazing. There's 42 tracks on there, and, and it's, it's amazing to look at, you know, the, the body of work. You know, the, that's, that's the main thing. It's an impressive list. I mean, there's so many singles, so many songs that everyone knows as Dance Along To, Broken Up To, Met Their Girlfriend, Boyfriend Over. I mean, you're <laughs> part of our lives. Yeah, that's extraordinary because... I've always known other people's music to have affected me that way, like the, the music of the Beatles, the music of Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. That's like the soundtrack of my life. Now people are coming to our shows and telling us that, and that is so humbling. It's, just, it's amazing. That's the whole thing. You know, when an artist, when an artist becomes, you know, is, is blessed enough uh, to become a part of the soundtrack of somebody's life, that's an honor. That's a really definitely an honor. And I think, you know, it's absolutely true because there's something about your songs that's got an emotional uplift. I think when you listen to a Shalimar song, you feel good at the end of the track. I know that's almost the title of one of your songs, but it's true. There's an uplifting feel about them. Yeah, I can make you feel good. It's, it's, it's feel-good music. You know, that's what I think that's what we went through a period of time here as well as at home in the States where, you know, it wasn't feel-good music anymore. And, and I think that's what people are kind of gravitating towards as far as this project's concerned. We're going to talk more about influences, but you mentioned a diverse range of, of artists there, uh, Jeffrey, which surprised me. The Beatles, for example, I wouldn't have thought that you were influenced by the Beatles. It's not obvious. How could you not be? I mean, exactly. if, if you are a songwriter and, yeah. if, and if you're interested in, in creating music, you got to go back to the Beatles, uh, the one-on-one the, the -on -one Beatles guidebook to, to, to making music. I mean, it influenced us. When the Beatles invasion came in 64, I was watching it on TV. My mother bought us the album. And that music was just so influential to me. I mean, not knowing that one day I would be an artist like that. Because back then, stars were stars. You, you, you weren't thinking, oh, one day I'm going to be one. You don't think that back then. Back then. So it's... it's, it's very influential, the Beatles music. Was it a secret thought that maybe, you know, one day you would like to be a star, you would like to be, you know, maybe as famous as the Beatles or nearly as famous as the Beatles? Not like that because back then uh, everybody didn't have a studio at home. A recording studio was a recording studio, right? So back then I always wanted to be an entertainer and I loved to entertain. Could I be a star one day? That was something beyond reach back then. <laughs> it's a night to remember, which is your first top five hit in the UK. And this was the really, really big one, the first big one in the UK. Mm -hmm. It's very, very, uh, very uh, influential here in the, in the UK. But I always think, whenever we talk about a night to remember, I always think about when we recorded it. And we recorded it on, on uh, Halloween night. It was like Halloween night at Larrabee Studios, remember? Mm -hmm. And there's somewhere there's a there's a two two inch track, you know, multi track of, of uh, full full harmonies everything, saying make this a night to dismember. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever record that version? We we recorded it, but we never we never uh, released it, of course. But 
Somewhere. Sitting in a vault somewhere, somewhere, there's a night to dismember. <laughs> there's a night to dismember. It's Halloween it. night. We won't do any dismembering, but that was such a big hit. When that was such a hit, how did you guys feel? Because, I mean, you know, top five, hugely influential, actually hit all over the world, actually. Well, see, that, and that's what I always say when we do interviews over here, because uh, also, I mean, there were, because the Friends album was so massive here, so huge here. But I mean, back home, we had we had we had three or four uh, earlier albums that were you know with a uh, second time around and 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 all that stuff on it. So we we you know we we had experienced massive hits you know before a night to remember, but I mean a night to remember just just went crazy on in this was so huge here in, in this country and it was, it was amazing. It took us into New Frontier. Right. New it Frontier. Took us into New Frontier, yeah. We're going to play some of the um, earlier hits and the hits in the U.S. It's interesting that some of the chart successes are not the same. Some hits have been bigger in the U.S. than, than exactly. bigger here and right, vice versa. What do you put that down to, Jeffrey? I think just the geographically what's going on in those certain markets because sometimes we can come here and we can have a, a show list and some songs on our show... We, we realized that we can't do these songs in the UK because they're not, they're not that big in the UK. And, and the same thing back, back in America. We just did a, a funk festival a year or so ago. We can't do Friends there. We can't do... Uh, there it is. There it is. was not big there. We have to go to our older school things like Make That Move, OU1, yeah. Second Time Around. Yeah. Things like that, you know, and but for the lover in you, major, for major, for, major, major. For the lover in you, I mean, major hit in, major. in the states, but it's, it's over here, not, not, very, not, not so very much. Well. But you know what? That's a that's a great problem to have. Well, you've got so <laughs> many songs. You've got plenty of songs. Yeah. Whatever you play, yeah. somewhere in the world's going to love them. Exactly. Let's go right back to the very beginning, and let's go back to Soul Train. So let's talk about that beginning because the way Shalimar. Uh, evolved. I mean, the group were originally not a group. It was created as a result of Soul Train. So tell the story. Uh, Jeff has it. Jeff, well, Jeffrey, you're the dancer, of course. <laughs> well, myself, uh, I was dancing on Soul Train, and I made Jody Watley my partner. And so we became like one of the most noticeable dance couples on the show. So everybody was, you know, asking about us. The guy, I was a skinny guy with the big afro. They didn't know my name yet. The afro is gone, but you're still the skinny guy. You look very good indeed. Tall, tall, skinny guy. Thank you. So I'm the tall, skinny guy with the big afro. So then. Um, Don Cornelius and Dick Griffey started a record company, Soul Train Records. And so at the end of it, they recruited me to be in the Soul Train gang, but it was towards the end of it. It's in 76. And Soul Train gang was falling apart. So Don Cornelius called me and said, Jeffrey, I'm going to take you out to Soul Train thing. I got something better for you. Because they had the song Uptown Festival. The song was already recorded. And so they asked me, did I know a female singer? Jody hadn't sang before. But at church, her mother was in the adult choir and I was in the youth choir. <laughs> but Jody was just coming to the church. So, so then I had to train Jody's voice. Sorry, I had to train her voice so that she could sing. But we were going to so add. So you a, trained Jody? Now that's fascinating. Yeah. So we we're going to add a girl in the group who could sing, lead vocals. So Jody still would have been there, but there would have been a female lead singer. But she went to Dick Griffey's place and auditioned for him. He said, oh, this is good. You know, we can do this. And so, so we didn't have to get another girl. We kept it with Jody. And where did the name Shalimar come from? Because I think the group didn't really have a title initially when Uptown yeah. was done. The, the first producer, Simone Susan, who put together the Uptown Festival and some of the songs on the Uptown Festival album, Inky Dinky Wang Dang Do, and these disco songs. He's from the Middle East, Morocco or so. Yeah, well, this is Africa. He's from Morocco. So he knew about the Shalimar Gardens. So Shalimar, the name Shalimar is because of the fragrance 
of the Shalimar Gardens. So we are the fragrance of R&B, soul and funk music. What a great story. So you're the fragrance of yeah. R&B. That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 So when you heard that name, you thought, yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Got to be that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, um, Uptown um, Festival was uh, a big hit in the uh, R&B charts in the US. I think it got to number two in the R&B, the dance charts in the US. Yeah. A bit, bit slower outside the US, but really it started the ball rolling for you, didn't it, in the US. Quite different, I think, to latter, you know, latter Shalimar songs. It was a, a different sort of sound at that point. Totally different, because it, it was disco. It was a collage of Motown songs put together in a disco context. So it was, that was strictly a disco song. It, that's what it was meant for, the clubs and the disco. So if, if, if it charted well or not in other territories, but the clubs were playing it, you know. At that point, did you think, right, we've now got this band, Shalimar, this could be big, or was it still very early days for you? Oh, too early, because then uh, we went through a couple of lead singers, like the lead singer on the song Take That to the Bank, that's Gerald Brown. And on Uptown Festival was Gary Mumford. And, but when, when we recruited Gerald Brown, I asked Howard to join, but Howard had other obligations. He was in a group. So you were busy doing something else? I was yeah. doing another. We, we, we met. There's a place called Maverick's Flat in, in L.A., and that's where Jeffrey and Jody and I first met before Shalimar even existed. And I was with a group, a show group, that the people there at Maverick's put together. Okay. And um, I used to do, whenever we would do a show, we wanted to try a show out. We would play at Maverick's on the weekend. And that's when Jeffrey, Jeffrey and I first met. Okay, so you wanted Howard Jeffrey to be on lead, but at that time he wasn't available, so uh, he didn't come in until later. So on uh, Take That to the Bank, it was not you singing, in fact, no, Howard. No, no, that was Gerald Brown. And that, that was a, that, Take That to the Bank got us some, you know, noticeability. It, it, it made some noise, and it, and it was, so we were taking it step by step. Even our tours, we went on the most basic city to city tour staying in the hotels motels that you wouldn't want to be in buses breaking down on the road so it was it wasn't never anything like an overnight thing for us everything happened step by step so it wasn't very very showbiz at that point right 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 so so we're not you were doing hard graft you were just working to build your name build your expertise exactly build your profile exactly exactly so we weren't thinking about the star thing or the famous thing or this and that we were just trying to catch up to our peers, you know, in the industry. Well, Take That to the Bank was significant. I mean, certainly, again, in the UK, it was your first top 20 hit. So mm. you were starting to get traction outside the US at this point. Right, right, right. And, and that, was, that was earlier on. And then when Howard finally came in, in 79, then that second time around, was is ironic because the first time we asked him, he had obligations. The second time, he was free. So he came the second time, and the first big hit was the second time around. This is Private Lives. I'm Paul Robinson. Howard Hughes and Jeffrey Daniel are my guests. You mentioned the shuffle, though. I haven't heard the shuffle for quite a while. That brought no. back some memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. I mean, because as you listen to the songs and those disco beats and those certain beats, it's just kind of like compels you to do those dances they'll, they'll come back <laughs> yeah i'm sure as soon as you hear the song you can't help now howard you're now joining the band so you're, you're finally becoming part of shalimar lead vocalist you have any doubts or were you absolutely convinced it's the right thing to do well you know the, the the first of all i was i was working with some people at motown at the time i i, I was with the group that that was uh that I, I was obligated to, I obligated myself to. We came over here and we toured a lot. Can you it was say who like it was? A, it was called Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills, right. And um, it was show group. We, we didn't record anything, it was just show group. We did all, everything from Disco Infernal to Mandy. 
right. And, so uh, it was Disco Inferno, which the Tramps did. Yeah, the Tramps, yeah. yeah. And so, like, you know, we were over here, and then by the time we got back to the States, we spent about a year and a little less than a year and a half over here. Then by the time we got back to the States, we had, we had broken up. And then I was working with some people at Motown, this cat Jeffrey Bowen, and he was doing this, this project on Eddie Hazel, guitar player for Parliament Funkadelic. And, um, and so we were doing a, doing a solo project on him. We had been working for about a month, couple months or so, and then they started giving me what we used to call back in the day the Motown runaround as far as money money was concerned. Well, they, mean, they didn't pay you. <laughs> they, we did, the, well, they paid, but it didn't reflect the amount of time that we were spending oh, in okay. the studio. Right. So, you know, so I went to, um, I, I went to Motown. Uh, I dropped my lady off. She worked for Don Cornelius at the Soul Train Dance Studios. So I dropped her off at work, and I went to the Motown building to have a meeting you know, about this, about the money. And this was on a Friday. So I'm sitting there at Motown at the time had this, would have the top three four floors of this high rise apartment, uh, office building on, on Sunset and Argyle up in Hollywood. So I'm, I'm sitting, they had 17, 16 and 15. So I'm sitting on an office on the 15th floor, you know, going through the whole thing, you know, you got blah, 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 blah. And then the phone rings, right? This was on a Friday. The phone rings, the guy answers the phone, and he looks at me, he says, uh, it's for you, right? And I said, well, if it's my lady, you know, tell her I'll call her when I get done with the meeting, because she was the only one that knew, that I knew of, that knew where I was. He said, well, it's not a lady, it's a guy, and it sounds like it's long distance. You know, this is before cell phones and all that stuff. So I get on the phone, and it's Jeffrey Daniel, Jeffrey. And where was Jeffrey calling you from? He was calling me at that time. You guys were in New York. You were in New York. They so it was were, New York to LA, effectively. Yeah, New York. They, they, he called, they were in New York, he said. And he went through the whole thing about what was going on. They were in the middle of a promotional tour. And um, he said, we want to offer you an equal position, uh, a equal position in the group, lead singer of the group. And he says, you're, you're at Motown, right? I, to this day, he, he found out where I was. I know he, he called my lady. You call Rainy. My lady was my, uh, we eventually got married, but uh, she was my lady at the time. So he called Rainy at, at, at the Soul Train Dance Studios. She told him I was at, at Motown building. He still won't tell me to this day how he got the exact office I was in at the time. Well, we got to ask Jeffrey. So, Jeffrey, <laughs> you called him at, at Motown. Not only did you get in the Motown building, you got the exact office. What is the secret? You had a hotline into the, the, into the Motown building? He's not saying. I know people. I know people in high places. I Clearly. I know people. Jeffrey Daniels has become very scary you know, indeed. Know, I know. I know. He's like the hitman, you know. So, like, you know, so. So you have to have this conversation then. While you're in the office, he's on the phone saying, come and join Shalimar. And you're Shalimar. sitting in the Motown office. In the Motown office. And he says, and he says, you're at Motown, right? I say, yeah. He said, where are you? I said, I'm up on the 15th floor. He said, well, Solar Records, which was a record company that Shalimar was, at, was with at the time. Uh, he said, Solar Records. Is, has, has their office in the same building down on the ninth floor. How spooky is that? I know, it was crazy, it was crazy. He said, we talked to Dick Griffey. Dick is, you know, we, he'll get down, he's waiting for you to get in touch with him, get talk to him, blah, blah, blah. And so I get off the phone and I tell these guys, you know, what the deal is. I said, that's Shalimar, Solar Records, blah, blah, blah. 
they say, the guy, I remember this guy says, man, Shalimar is nothing but a fly-by-night disco group. They'll never amount to anything, and, and Solar will never be a Motown Records, blah, 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 blah. And so I just got quiet and listened to them, and after they got finished talking, I said, well, listen, I'm, I'm parked on the street. My car's parked on the street. I need to go down and put some money in the meter <laughs> before I get a ticket. So I leave there, and I go down to the ninth floor, and I go into and Dick Griffey. I go and talk to Dick Griffey. He reiterates what what Jeff said, you know. And and then I told him, I said, you know, it, it, I'm interested. I said, but I have to, you know, at least give these people a chance to rectify themselves because even though I hadn't signed contracts, I was still my word. It was still we have still been working for for a couple months on this project. So. I left and I called and I said, look, if you guys want to rectify this thing, call me. I'll be home all night. Nobody calls. So Saturday morning, I called Dick Griffey. I said, look, I'll, I'll come over, you know, and, and, and we'll talk about this thing. So I go over to the house. I watch a videotape of a Shalimar show and I'm sitting in this rocking chair and Dick says, well, sing something. Jeffrey and Jody say you're a great singer, right? Just sing something. I said, just sing something, you know, right here, acapella? He says, yeah. And then to myself, I said, well, Lord, you know, me and you, right? And so I broke into Peebo Bryson, Feel the Fire. Right. right. Got through the first verse, half the hook. Dick says, okay, fine, 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 I'll be right back. He goes upstairs, comes back down, he has $500 cash, which I says, here's some cash. He gave you the you money know, there and there. He gave me money, you know. And he says, then he goes to another pocket and says, here's the airline ticket. And that was back in the day. I could ride on your ticket. You could ride yeah, on my ticket. Piece of paper, yeah, yeah, no specific name. And so he said, here's the airline ticket. You have to catch a red eye out tonight. Meet the group. And they had moved from New York to New Jersey. He said, meet the group in New Jersey uh, tomorrow morning because I'll take the red eye Saturday. Get there Sunday morning. He said, all day, you know, you got to rehearse the lip sync and the choreography to take that to the bank. He said, because Monday you got a TV show to do. And like, I'm like, I'm sitting in, and I'm from Ohio, right? So Ohio, prerequisite, when you're from Ohio, you got to be cool about everything, right? right? So I'm like, okay, cool, cool, okay. So you think you can handle it? Yeah, yeah, I can handle it. Inside, I'm like, I got a job, I got a job, <laughs> you know. But outside, trying to be Mr. Cool. <clears throat> be cool, you know, the whole thing. I remember I called my mom, and uh, my mom says, I said, Mom, I got a job. I'm leasing at this school called Shalimar. She said, the Shalimars? I've never heard of the Shalimars. I said, no, it's not the Shalimar, Mom. It's, it's Shalimar. And she has to need my sister. Nita, you ever heard of the Shalimar? She, you know, <laughs> Sounds like a restaurant. <laughs> I know, exactly. It? But back then, everything was the Shirelles, the, the Temptations, the Beatles. So, like, you know, but that's how it went down. And I, I got on the plane that night, met them in New Jersey. Uh, Sunday morning, we rehearsed the lip sync choreography to take that to the bank. Monday and Monday, we we were doing a TV show. What a brilliant story! <laughs> and I mean, and Jeffrey Howard coming into the band was really a new start for Shalimar, wasn't it? And in fact, you know, the um, the second time around uh, became a huge hit. You had a number one hit on the US R&B charts, number one hit on the US dance chart. It was a really important song. Yeah, it, actually, it was. And uh, and even second time around. 
It had a disco feel to it because that's what was happening at the time. That's what the climate was. But Howard's voice still gave it more of a soulful delivery to that disco type of, of feel. Howard hates disco, but still, he, he's got to know people love those songs. <laughs> Howard hates disco, I, I seriously? Hate disco. The oh Don, like we did, we did an interview earlier, and the only thing that saved me was uh, for disco was Donna Summer. That was it, you know. Okay. But <laughs> well, we will forgive Donna Summer. You know, at the club where I met Howard, I'm up there dancing like crazy, sweating and everything to get the girls' attention. Of course. I was from back east. He's cool. He's leaning up against the wall like, yeah. Who got the most girls then, you or Howard? He may have because he was was cool. So really, from that point, you didn't look back? No no looking back. No looking back. back. No no reason to look back. And the success built. So, I mean, you know, that that hit, I think, you know, helped to reestablish. You had a fantastic new vocalist. What happened... When it hit us, when it really hit us, is when we played the Greek theater, which is up in the Hollywood Hills, the outdoor theater. And that's like an upscale theater, right? You know, the Jacksons were in our audience. Mm-hmm. My, my, not Michael. The Jacksons were in the audience. Yeah. Yep. The Jacksons were in the audience. We had done the magical trick that all of the uh, R&B artists were hoping for, crossing over because the audience was majority white. It was very mixed, you know. And that's when we knew wow, I think we've done something, we, we, we've accomplished something here. So when you started, it was more of a black audience and then it became a mainstream, uh, irrespective of color, where people are from, you, everybody loved you. Th- that's America because, yeah. you know, the black radio station, white radio station, that's the thing that differentiates it from the, here in the UK because when we came to the UK, you can hear everything on one station, basically. But there in America, yeah, you had your R&B stations and your rock stations, you know, your white stations, black stations, da da da. So, but when you get to a big venue like that and you see that your audience has crossed over and is well mixed, then that, that's a sign that, okay, you, you, you're going somewhere, you made it. My thanks to Howard Hewitt and Jeffrey Daniel, and I love that phrase, the Motown runaround. And before that, huge kudos to Steve Colazzo of Odyssey. This has been the Private Lives podcast from East London Radio. Time to put your dancing shoes away. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. There'll be more Private Lives very soon. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart. Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>